I'll tell you, joy is the key to a proper attitude in life. And brethren, we are all going to face all kinds of trials and struggles. It's not all a picnic. It's not all a, it's not all a hallelujah shouting match. I know that, friend. But joy is not created by possessions. Joy is not created by positions. Joy is created by a person, even the Lord Jesus Christ. And a good dose of holy joy would do us all well. And I'm not talking about silly putty religion here, brother. I'm talking about something that comes from being rightly related to God and being in the presence of God. I believe of all the people alive on planet Earth today, we should not be wringing our hands and worrying about the future and worrying about the end of the world and worrying about this and worrying about that. I believe of all the people in the world, we should have the joy of God in these latter days unparalleled to the rest of our society. Good morning, everybody. Good to see you. I appreciate that greeting. That was kind. That was warm. All right, grab your Bibles. Turn to the book of Philippians. If you're new to your Bible, it's going to be towards the right-hand side. Uh, and if you don't have a Bible, down the center column of, of seats are a couple Bibles underneath. You can grab one of those and use it as we work through the Scriptures today. Philippians is going to be around page 690, 80-something, 80, 90-something. Philippians chapter 2, we're going to be looking at verses 1 through 4. As you're turning, uh, public, public paid service announcement. This actually isn't a public service announcement. It's just my wife's birthday was Friday. Isn't that pretty cool? Yeah, yeah. I can't tell you how old that she, that she is because that would probably be inappropriate for a husband to do. But here's the cool thing about my wife. My wife is slightly younger than I am. I told her, I was like, so... Your youth is not going to serve you well because you married an older man. That means people are going to automatically think that you're my age. But here's the cool thing about my wife is that, I mean, she is getting a little older, but she's even more beautiful today than she was 22 years ago, 25 years ago when I met her. So, so happy birthday. Um, whew, where do I go from there? Man. All right. Let's read these verses. Uh, chapter 2, 1 through 4 together. We're going to read them out loud, and you can cheat and read on the screen if you don't have your Bible with you. All right, let's go. So if there is any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy, complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for its timeliness, uh, its uh, timelessness. Thank you for its inspiration and for this exhortation from Paul in, in regards to humility today. And, and, and Lord, if there's ever a message that we need as your people, that we need as a country, it's this message here. And so... Open our ears that we might hear, open our minds that we might um, be given uh, things to think about, but more importantly, Lord, open our hearts today and, uh, and, and, and invite us to receive. And I pray that in Jesus' name, amen and amen. It's a true saying, humility is our greatest friend and pride is our greatest enemy. So for the next two weeks, we're going to be looking at the theme of humility. And I introduced that quote to you by the English Anglican theologian John Stott, because I think with the state of 
where we are as a culture, sometimes it's easier to, to talk about humility from what it's not than what it actually is. In, in, in other words, it might be easier to show what humility really is by juxtaposing it with an opposite character trait, which in this case would be pride. And so when you think about the culture that we live in today, um, it is probably fair to say that we admire those who are proud. It used to be that pride was a vice. Now it's more of a, a virtue. We see pride and arrogance on display everywhere, uh, really all around us. We see it among the rich. We see it among the powerful, the, success, the successful, the famous athletes, celebrities of all sorts. It would even um, appear to be amongst those in the religious community. But oh, by the way, pride is alive and well in those of us who are in this room right now, just ordinary people living lives like you and I. And I think few of us realize um, the danger that pride has to our souls. And what, what Paul is suggesting here in our text is how greatly pride, or should I say the lack of humility, because he doesn't use that word pride, but he is talking about humility to us today, of how pride hinders our intimacy with God and it get, interferes with our love towards other people. Pride has a long history, uh, and it's fair to say that the very first sin and the origin of pride is demonic. Isaiah 14, verses 13 and 14, shows us this record where Satan rebels against God, and it tells us that uh, Satan and all of his demonic angels were uh, subsequently kicked out of heaven. And if you see the words on the screen there. And in those words, basically all Satan is doing is he is elevating himself, not so that he would uh, not just be God, but be above God and, and reign supreme. And so pride not only appears in the earliest of sins, it's likely the core of, of all sins. At the core of every sin that you and I and every person that's existed on the planet has ever committed, there's, there's a hint of pride in that. And we can see that, that strain running all the way through the Bible to include uh, the very first sins in the very first chapters of the Bible with Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden. Think about Genesis 3. Um, pride appears as, as Satan comes in the form of a serpent and he seduces Adam and Eve to denounce and disobey what God has said to them and instead raise themselves up above the level of God so that they can rule and reign over themselves. And that's pride. Throughout the Old Testament, you have the nations, uh, the nation, national leaders of Israel, which would include the prophet, priests, and the kings who uh, who basically led Israel into all kinds of rebellion and idolatry and sin as they, as they covenanted with God and said they were going to make him their God as they remained his people, but then they rebelled by turning, turning and doing exact opposite. And in a sense, they were prideful in that they would not repent and uh, invited God's judgment on them. We find examples of pride and its consequences in the lives of individuals such as King Uzziah, whom Second Chronicles writes this record of, of, his, of his dealings. It says, when he was strong, he grew proud to his destruction, for he was unfaithful to the Lord his God. We see pride in the story of, of Haman. Remember the, uh, the, the book of Esther in the Old Testament? Haman was a, a, a prominent military figure in the, the story of Esther. And what's interesting about Haman is he was trying to commit genocide on a whole race of people, that being the Jews, because they simply would not bow down to him. And then in a, a very similar vein, we have Nebuchadnezzar, the, the king of Babylon, who in Daniel 4 
decides that he's going to erect a statue that's a semblance of himself and have everybody bow down to it, calling himself uh, the God. And what happens to him? God chastises him, uh, ejects him from his own kingdom and makes him to live like an animal out in the woods for, for many years. But it's not just the Old Testament that we see pride. We see pride and its consequences in the New Testament. In, in uh, the Gospel of Mark, chapter 10, the disciples, James and John, attempted to position themselves for greatness uh, along Jesus' left and their right side. What do they say to, to Jesus? It says, Lord, uh, may we sit at your left and right as you come into your kingdom. And of course, all the other disciples became indignant after they found out that James and John were doing that. We read of Peter's pride at Jesus' trial. The Peter that said he would never denounce Jesus um, in front of a a young servant girl, in front of a fire, uh, denies Jesus three times. And lastly, I think uh, we see uh, pride in the example of Paul. Paul, one of the greatest Christians that's ever lived on the planet. We see pride in him as he persecuted Christians for their belief in Jesus. Um, This is the last thing I'll say about pride, but it's probably the uh, the most telling Pride is what the Bible says that God hates pride. Those are harsh words, but it's true. Proverbs 6, 16 and 17. There are six things that the Lord hates, seven that are an abomination to him. And the first thing that the, the wise man in Proverbs lists in verse 17 are haughty eyes. And so what is, what is the character of someone that has haughty eyes? It's someone who looks at everything from the perspective of, of, of arrogance and superiority, and we should add pride. And so that's really a long introduction, but I I was trying to paint a picture of what humility is not so that we can see what it is. And humility is not the picture that we see uh, oftentimes in the Bible, and and unfortunately, it's not what we see in our lives. It's what Paul is going to unpack for us. And so our text today shows that pride-like character has the potential to undermine unity and can ultimately divide a church. That's where Paul is going. And so in chapter two, Paul is addressing this important uh, important virtue of humility. And he's going to show us that unity is based on humility. Unity is based on humility. And then uh, really, this is a two-part sermon. We're going to start this I, start this topic of humility t- today, and then we're going to finish it next week because what Paul does is he segues into what's one of the most um, important popular, most quoted passages in all the Bible in Philippians 2, where it gives us a picture of Jesus who humbly uh, came to earth, lived uh, life as a human, and then um, God exalted him for that, that humility that he set uh, by, by doing all those things. And so diving into our text, look at verse 1. Paul says, so if there is any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy. Verse 2, complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. And so this is a letter. Okay, the, 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 the verses and the division that you see in your Bible are obviously manufactured. Men have put those in there. And so in a letter, as you would be writing to someone, if you wanted to change the subject, you wouldn't put a number there. Obviously, you just go ahead and start talking about something else. And so Paul is doing that. He's kind of changing the theme. He's easing into a different theme from what he was doing in chapter one. Basically, chapter one, what is he doing? Introducing himself and saying, hey, thanks for your partnership in the gospel. I've been praying for you. You guys are some of the, the best supporters that I've ever had all these years of my gospel ministry. And in chapter two, he's 
continuing that same thought and then segueing into the idea of, of, of humility. And in fact, at the end of chapter 1, verses 27 to 30, Paul was exhorting the Philippians to stand firm in one spirit with one mind striving for the faith of the gospel. And if I could summarize all that I said last week into one sentence, it would be unity in the fellowship of the church is essential to our witness. I said it like this last week. The, uh, the way that we present ourselves as Christians has to match up to the gospel that we proclaim. Otherwise, we're being uh, hypocrites, right? And, and Paul is suggesting that he doesn't want the church to be that. And so looking at verse one, Paul begins with like an if then. And, and if then statement. Remember that from high school or college math? He, he's, he's showing us if these things are true, then here are the implications that follow. And in verse one, he is presenting us with, with four ifs, if you will. And grammatically, let me say this. Paul isn't doubting that this Philippian church has these things that he's going to call out in, in verse one. He's, he's, he's grammatically setting this up. And really what he's saying is since. Not just if, but, but since. Since these things are true about you. He's, his logic is because the, ch- the, the, the church at Philippi has experienced so much blessing from, I mean, they're a good church. They've experienced the blessing of God and not only just experienced it, they were living it out. So he's saying, since you've experienced this grace from God, these, these are the things that should be um, evident in your life. And then he gives examples of the, the, the blessings of grace. And the first thing that he says is that you, you're being united in Christ. If, if therefore, if there's any encouragement in Christ, Paul says. And of course, the, the words to train your eyes on are those two words, in Christ. In Christ. This is Paul's summary expression of all that it means to be a Christian. And we've talked about this before. It speaks of our unity with Jesus. To be in Christ is to be a a benefactor of all that Christ is and all that he secured for us by his perfect life and his death on the cross. So um, any of y'all had a bad day? I mean, just wake up in the morning and just everything goes wrong. Anybody ever had a day like that? Y'all, you're lying. Coming to church lying. All right, so a couple days this week, I mean, I had trouble getting out of bed, and uh, I don't know what it was. It, it's probably a little bit of just lethargy, just laziness. Um, but it might have just been just depression. I was like, just life's a funk, and you can't shake it. And, and here's where this, this idea of being in Christ helps you. I turn to Ephesians 1. And so here's, here's what Paul is saying. This is a pick-me-up, if you will. This is, even, this is even in a part of my sermon. So start reading at verse 3, and Paul is going to remind you of who you are, of who he says you are, despite how you feel. So in verse 3, he says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who's blessed us in Christ, there's those two words, with every blessing in the heavenly places. Because you're in Christ, a follower of Jesus, saved bought by his blood, then he's blessed you with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. That means you have blessings that that are in heaven that you don't even know anything about yet. Verse 4, even as he chose you in him before the foundation of the world, that you should be holy and blameless before him. In love, that's another uh, derivation of that word, in him. He predestined you for adoption as sons through Jesus, according to the purpose of his wills, the praise of his glorious grace with which he's blessed you in the beloved. In him, 
you have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses, according to the graces, the riches in grace, which he lavished upon you in all wisdom and insight, making known to you the mystery of his will, according to his purpose, which he set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in him through heaven, uh, things in heaven and things on earth. Verse 11, in him you have obtained, obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to uh, the counsel of his will, so that we who were the first to hope in Christ might be to the praise of his glory. In him, you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and, in, and, and believed in him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of his glory. Th- these, are, these are just some beautiful words. And Paul is trying to, to, to set the stage for what God, um, what's right of you, even though it might not be the, the presenting thing in your life. This is what God says of you. This is what he says. This is how he changes your identity as you profess faith in Jesus, that he chooses you before the foundation of the world. He saves you, predestines you. He redeems you. And oh, by the way, he gives you the, the promised Holy Spirit, that, that a promise that won't that won't ever fade, an inheritance that won't ever fade. And so when, when Paul says, in Christ, these are the things he's talking about. In Romans 6, he, he keeps talking about this idea of being in Christ. He says, it means to die to the reign of sin in your life and live instead to a new life of consecration, not to the, the, the bad stuff or, or the, the sinful part of you, the in-flesh stuff, but to all that God has called you to. And probably the the verse that everybody quotes in regards to this idea of being in Christ is 2 Corinthians 5.17. If anyone is in Christ, he's a new creation. The old is passed away. Think about all those things about you that, that are in your past. And he says, behold, all things are new. I mean, those, those are just great words. And so here's what Paul is saying. If there's encouragement in Christ, he's saying, since these things are true about you, that you are united in Christ. And then he goes on and says, here's another grace, that you've received comfort from his love. And this is a reference to to Christ's love for you. And the suggestion here is that you can't be a Christian born of God by the Holy Spirit without feeling the grip of Jesus' love for you. I mean, that's a prerequisite for being a Christian knowing and understanding God's love for you. And here's the thing that we do. A lot of times we define love by the way that we have experienced it or the way we might understand it. And sometimes we come from families that, that, that might not give you the best definition or the picture of love. And we, I mean, what, what do we do? We put, that, we put that facade on God as if that's the way that God loves me too. And the, and the Bible wants to correct that. If, if you have an incorrect view of God's love for you, Paul here is trying to reorient to, orient you uh, that God's love is a, is a comforting love. More so, um, I mean, here's the beauty of, of God's love for you. Uh, a lot of times we, we have this gushy, you know, unexplained feeling kind of thought about love, whereas the Bible says love is actually an event. And that event is is defined all over the Bible. But but I like how 
the gospel writer John defines it in 1 John uh, chapter 4, verse 9. He says, And this is love, and this the love of God was made manifest among us, that God sent his only Son into the world so that we might live through him. Verse 10, And this is love, not that we have loved God, but that he loved us and sent his Son to be the propitiation for our sins. Those are a lot of, a lot of big words, but that basically means that God, through Jesus, has absorbed um, the wrath of our sin, brought them onto himself, and that is, that's love. What's love? It's, it's cruciform. It's a picture of, of, of a Christ-type love being um, pinned to, nailed to a cross such that you bleed out and die. Love is an event. Uh, Paul Tripp is one of my favorite uh, authors and, um, and writers, and Paul Tripp has this just like brilliant definition of love. He says, love is willing, sac- willing self-sacrifice for the good of someone else, it doesn't require reciprocation. That means it's not tit for tat. You love me this way, I'm going to love you that way. You do this for me, I'm going to do that for you. And then, and then he ends it with this, and for which the other person is probably not even deserving. Think about that. Loving someone who is not even deserving of your love. That's hard for us to do. And that's the kind of love that God has for you, and that he's reminding us of here. Paul says in 2 Corinthians 5.14, For the love of Christ controls us because we have concluded this, that one has died for all. Uh, that word controls can also be translated compels. I am compelled to love because there's one who's died for me, who's shown me what real love really looks like. And so what are the graces that Paul is trying to remind us of? He says, being united in Christ comfort from the love of God. And thirdly, he says participation in the Spirit. And he's used this phrase already in this letter. Uh, Participation is the word, the Greek word koinonia. It means fellowship or communion. He used it in verse 5 when he thanked the the Philippians for their partnership or their participation in the gospel with them. And and here it's, it's a reminder for us, a reminder that the indwelling Holy Spirit makes us one. What happens when you become a Christian? God gives you the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit draws you to Jesus. You're one with Christ. And oh, by the way, as you're drawn to be one with Christ, he draws us to be one with another. And lastly, he says affection and sympathy. If there is any affection and sympathy, and this is an appeal to the mercy of God. We don't don't think about God being merciful a lot. Here's what Paul says in Romans 12, verse 1. He says, I beseech you, brothers and sisters, by the mercy of God. Of God. He's reminding us that God is a God of mercy. What's mercy? It's Him withholding what you deserve. What, what do we deserve? The truth is, we deserve death. What has God given us? He's giving us, his, he's giving us uh, the ability to be united in Christ. He's giving us his, uh, the comfort of His love. He's allowed us to participate in the, in the very spirit um, that, 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 that Jesus sends out into the world to, to do His bidding. And so here's what Paul is encouraging us with, that compassion and sympathy flow from our union with with Christ, that we are objects of God's great compassion and tender care. And and that's something that you can't forget. The psalmist reminds us, uh, Psalm 103, one of my favorite psalms, Bless the Lord, O my soul, and forget not all his benefits, who forgives us of our iniquity. Iniquity is a lofty word that means sin who, um, who um, fills us with love and compassion so that our youth is renewed like an eagle. What's the, what's the psalmist doing? 
I would say it as a preacher, he's, he's preaching the gospel to himself. He's reminding himself of all the benefits that he gets from having a God that's merciful. And so what, what, what do all these, these ifs here mean? Paul's saying if we're Christians, if we're in fellowship with God's church, these are the characteristics that will be produced in us. More than that, he's saying since these things are true about you and the God that you serve, then here's the implications. And when he, when he goes on and gives us some implications, he, he centers on the idea of unity, a unity that's based on humility. And so in verse 2, what he does is he tells us what humility looks like. And the first thing he tells us that humility looks like, he says it's joy for others. Look at verse 2. I'm in the wrong chapter. Verse 2, it's if there were a then right there. Then complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. And so Paul is giving us a picture of unity. He gave us a picture actually in verses 27 through 30 of chapter 1 of what unity looks like in the church. And he's saying that unity has to, you know, has to match the gospel for which Christ has called you to. And now he's giving us, uh, he's sort of uh, developing this, this picture of unity and what it looks like as it's lived out in the life of the church. And one of the first, thing that, first things that he says is, it's completing my joy. When he says my, he's talking about himself. Uh, I would, I would, admit to you, that's a strange phrase to us. It sounds different for Paul to use this vernacular um, because it sounds like he's being selfish. And in a way, I think he probably is, but he's doing that in a, in a kind way. Um, I think in the most general way, Paul here is challenging their view of what's important. And, and here, here will be the, the, the way to put it. Uh, is, is, is this more important, my own self-indulgence, me doing whatever I want with my life, my decisions, my pathway? Uh, or could I perhaps give someone else, in this case particularly Paul, the one who brought them the gospel that they have believed in, the joy of seeing them mature in, in, in the grace of God? And so here's what Paul is introducing. He's like, you know what, I'm not asking you for material goods. I don't need you. I don't need your stuff. God is taking care of me. In verse, in chapter four, he'll go on to say, you know what, I've learned to be content. I have all that I need. I know, I've learned how to be um, okay with a lot. I've learned how to be okay with even a little bit, nothing. And so he doesn't need their stuff, but what he is commending here is that there is something to... um, to, to giving allegiance to those who serve as spiritual mentors in your life. Three weeks ago, I talked about how one of the things that Paul does in this, in this book is he shows us the relationship between a pastor and his congregation. I mean, this is an up-close and personal glimpse of, of his love, his genuine care and concern for this group of people. And he's known them for at least 10 years at, at, at this writing. And so what does this look like? It looks like that they're not making decisions solely that benefit them without looking back and thinking towards that person that, um, that cares about them, and, you know, from a gospel maturity kind of way. And so what I would encourage you is just application of this verse. Who are those people, your parents, your grandparents, those spiritual mentors, the person that led you to faith, that that as you're living your life, making decisions, going about doing whatever you do, that, that when you make a particular decision, 
that you would think back to that person and ask, is what I'm doing right now or what I'm about to do, would it bring joy to that person? Would they, would they cheer me on as I'm growing in the Lord through this decision that I'm about to make? In fact, can I even grow in the Lord with this decision that I'm about to make? All right, that was for free. So humility looks like joy for others. It also looks like unity with others. Being of the same mind, Paul says, having the same love, being in full accord. Um, the theologians um, say this is agreement. I'm not differing with them, but I call it something else. Because you know what? I mean, we can be friends and agree theologically and culturally. I mean, you have a lot of, a lot of similarities, but we can disagree about a lot of things, right? Don't you know married couples that, that love each other genuinely and just have a lot of love in their home that disagree on some things? How are you going to discipline your kids? How are you going to raise your kids? Public school, private school, charter school. I mean, we're going to pay for their college or not. As parents, we disagree on those things. There's people in this same room here that disagree in regards to politics, right? Yes, we do. Yes and amen. We do. I know because I talked to you all. And so... I'm going to not, not say that it's not talking about agreement. I think what Paul is, is suggesting here is that we have the same mentality. He's talking about attitude. He wants us to have the right attitude. And he's going to get to that as he talk, starts talking about Jesus a little bit. But more so, he wants us to be on the same page. Uh, whenever I'm counseling uh, young couples, particularly those who are getting ready to get married, I go all the way back to Genesis 2.24, that famous phrase that's repeated many times in the Bible that says, for this reason, a man uh, will leave his father and his mother, hold fast to his wife, and the two become one flesh. That's that miracle that happens when you're uh, you meet your mate, marry them. Two people become one. That's a physical union. It's talking about the intimacy of marriage. But it's also, perhaps even more so, talking about a spiritual unity where you aren't always in agreement because people even in, that grow up in similar environments don't always agree, but he wants you to be on the same piece of paper. we got to live life off of one piece of paper. Otherwise, we got two people doing very, very different things, and that doesn't bring unity. So he wants us to be on the same piece of paper. Instead of nursing petty squabbles and rivalries, Paul says, keep your heads on straight, folks. Remember your common identity. What's our common identity? We looked at it in Ephesians 1, that we've been chosen by God, um, elected as a part of his, the, the people that he pursues and makes a part of his church family. He sanctifies us. He redeems us. He gives us the promise of the Holy Spirit. That's your, that's your new identity. You're not an orphan. You're a child, a son and daughter of God. And oh, by the way, he says, don't neglect the mission that I put you on. What's the mission? That's in a different book of the Bible. That's Matthew 28, right? The Great Commission, that we're supposed to be disciples who are making other disciples. He says, let that be your focal point. Remember the gospel. So humility looks like joy for others. That's different for us. Humility looks like unity with others. That can be hard for us. And then he says, humility also looks like value for others. This, this one's the game changer. Let me ask you this, folks. What, do you, what value do you place on other people? Now, I have to tell you, Paul is talking about value for other people inside the church. But, of course, we're supposed to be a, a, a city within a city. 
In fact, a city on a hill with lights in our hand for people to look at us holding a beacon. I mean, we, God has put us on display for all the world to see. And the truth is, if we can't get this right, then, then who can? If we, with God and his spirit in us, can't get this idea of valuing other people for who they are, none of that other stuff, who God has made them, then this is not going to happen in the rest of our society. And so Paul teases this out. Verse 3, he says, Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit. Commentators note that Paul, Paul is likely bringing up the very issue that he has, like one, one little small issue that, that might be going on in the church at Philippi, so much so that in chapter 4, he's going to say, I entreat Yodia and, and, and Syntyche, to agree in the Lord. They had some kind of squabble going on that Paul is going to mediate and adjudicate. And he's like, come on, come on, come on, ladies. I need you to get on the same page because everybody's looking at you and you're disrupting the unity of the church. Can we not all just get along? And so Paul brings up two words in this regard. Firstly, he, he says selfish ambition. And those are the same words that he used back in chapter one in verse 17 to describe the, the Christians in the Roman community who preached Jesus out of envy. They were trying to like poke at Paul when he's in prison by preaching Jesus. And Paul's like saying, man, you can't get me riled up by preaching Jesus. Are people coming to faith? Have at it. Go, go preach Jesus all you want. That envy is not going to bother me. This also means rivalry. Self, selfish ambition also means rivalry. And that brings up, the, again, the issue of pride. Because if you are rivalrous, then, I mean, you're in competition with other people. Pride is competitive by nature. It tries to lift one person above another, and it promotes a conflict, it promotes conflict rather, rather than har harmony. And so Paul says, selfish ambition, don't do that. But he also says, don't be conceited. And that, um, that word, I mean, really means pride. It means excessive pride. The Greek word here is interesting. It's kenodoxia, which is a compound word. Kino, no, doxia, glory. It simply means no glory or no weight, empty glory. Um, this is a hard word to, to describe. Let me give you a word picture. Think of something or someone that looks like it has substance, but when you, when you peer into it, it it's shallow. Um, I think of uh, you're, like, uh, you're on a football team and the, you, you the heavy jugs that usually have a lot of water in it. You've got to use a lot of strength to pick them up. You get to it and you, I mean, you, you, you get ready to, to um, set a good foundation so you can pick it up and you, you, it's like, these are light, nothing in it. Uh, ladies, this is the guy in high school or college that was like, I mean, handsome, beautiful, a beautiful specimen of a man, head to toe, like, dang, I love him. And then you get a chance to talk to him, and you realize he opens his mouth and is like, there's nothing in between his ears. <laughs> like, that, that kind of shallow. That's what he's talking about. He's also talking about, um, he's describing those people who, who think too much of themselves. That's what kenodoxia means, conceited. And so the verse continues, uh, do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourself. Again, Paul is playing to this, uh, this Philippian Roman colony. Count and significant are military words, and Paul is, is playing into the fact that Philippi is filled with, with um, former Roman soldiers. It's filled with veterans, and the connotation was, act as if you're addressing someone who is more significant than you. 
And so whatever your station in life is, act as if you're speaking and dealing with someone that's one level, two levels up from you. If you're a general, then pretend like you're talking to the president. If you are um, uh, uh, a subject, then obviously everybody is, is, is above you. He's saying, have that mind about yourself. Treat other people as if they are royalty. Paul would say in Ephesians 5, husband, this is how you should be treating your wives. One up from yourself. Treat them like they're a queen. Love them as Christ loved the church. But it's also for us who have just simple friends. Treat your friends like they are royal. Princesses, princesses, and princes. And so let me ask you, I mean, how are you doing on this one? Seriously, I mean, how are you doing on this one? I think this is, this is an important message for us. Valuing others. What value do you place on other people? It's easy for us to have selfish ambition and conceit and not even know it when it comes to other people. And these words here, in humility count others more significant than yourself, can do a whole bunch of help to the world that we live in. And Paul is saying, if we can't get this right in the church, it's not going to get right out in, out in society. Think about the, it's Sunday, guys. Football is about to be played, and people are more interested in if the players are going to take a knee at the national anthem versus, I mean, what, what football team is going to beat what other team, which shows us that the issue is, I mean, it, first of all, it's a national issue. It's an issue that's political. It's an issue that's full of race. It's a cultural issue. And We've lost sight of the importance of the issue, I mean, just the importance of just working through the issue because we don't have value. We don't, we don't have to place value on other people. And, you know, we don't need to discuss the issue in the midst of my sermon, but what would happen, even in this room, if on that one particular issue that I said, okay, we're going to have a civil conversation, but I'm going to have value for what you believe and what you think, let's come to the table and um, even though we might disagree on whether I should stand or whether I'm even able to kneel as the national anthem is played, um, can we not at least be on the same page as Christians and live life not divided, but in humility come together and be united as Christ has called us to be? That's what he's talking about. And here's the thing that makes us fail at this. It's our pride. It's that, it's that P word. It's pride. And here are the things that pride makes us do. Firstly, pride is self-sufficient. It says, I've got everything I need. Pride is self-important. I'm the only one that matters. Me, just me. Pride is self-indulgent. I need this. I deserve this. Pride is self-interested. Life around, revolves around me, me, myself, and I. Pride is self-exalting. I deserve to be praised. But in the end, this is what pride leads to. It leads to self-glorification. And what I'm doing there is I'm robbing God of the glory that he needs. And I'm basically saying, you know what? Bump God. I'm the one that's supreme here. You should be listening to me. And here's the, here's the other place that, that pride trips us up. On the other end of our prideful thoughts and our prideful actions are people. I mean, there's people on the receiving end of every prideful deed, every prideful thought that we have. And, and Paul is saying, if we treat people with contempt and indifference, I mean, basically at the root, that attitude is, it's all about me. And that all the more makes what Paul says in verse 3 really important. And here's what Paul says. 
He says, in humility. Say that out loud. In humility. Uh, whenever I use the word humility, I can't help but think of uh, C.J. Mahaney. C.J. Mahaney is a, a pastor and author. He leads the Sovereign Grace Network. And many years ago, I wasn't feeling prideful, but for whatever reason, I read the book. And this book really changed my perspective, firstly on pride, but more so on what it means to be humble. And not that I'm necessarily as humble as I should be, but definitely it gave me tools to work with. And, and C.J. Mahaney had a lot to say about humility. And I will tell you, he's a good person to write it because he failed in this area. He almost lost his whole network because of the pride that was in his heart. And people call a whole network of pastors and leaders called him on it. Okay, and that bo- this book is the product of it. What, what, um, what better um, way to benefit the church than having someone who failed and, and, and knows what pride is to write about humility? And, and here's what uh, C.J. Mahaney has to say. He says, firstly, hu- humility is a uniquely Christian virtue. He says one of the reasons we should all believe the Bible is true is because no one would ever have invented a humble God. It just it doesn't make sense to have a God who would humble himself to the point of death on a cross. And he defines humility as honestly assessing ourselves in the light of who God is, God's holiness and our sinfulness. And so did you hear that? Humility is not just me being modest and and lowering myself and exalting other people. It's assessing myself in view of who God is. Humility then has to do with a proper estimation of ourselves. And so going back to verse 3, Paul says, In humility, count others as more significant than yourselves. I think what he's saying here, it's not so much that others in the community are to be thought of as better than I am. It's It's not treat people as if they're better than you. Here's what he's saying. I should treat them as those whose needs and concerns surpass my own. I think that's a good way to, to go about life, assuming that someone that you're addressing, even someone um, whose station in life might be above or perhaps even below yours, have needs and concerns that surpass your own. And I think what he's saying is this is how true unity is formed in the church. So Paul is dealing with our attitude here. He's encouraging us to have the right attitude. Remember that that word? Have, be of the same mind. He's talking about attitude. If selfish ambition and conceit lead to division and broken relationships within a church, then the surest safeguard to a healthy church is when all of us consider each other as more important than ourselves. And he's saying this has got to be a part of your character. And if we can't get this right, then we shouldn't expect the world to get it right. And then look at verse four. He says, let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also the interests of others. And the emphasis here is on, on, on two words. The second word and the last word, each and others. You know, our obedience with anything that God tells us to do begins with with us, with the individual. You come into into the faith as a child of God, you know, faith in Jesus, being born of the Spirit as an individual, and then God immerses you into the life of the church. He makes you a part of the community. And so the the emphasis rests uh, with the benefit of being obedient to the church and, and, the, and the church community. And I think it's, it's fair to say we don't fulfill God's divine purposes for us as individuals. It, 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 we, fu- we fulfill God's purpose for ourselves when we do it as a, as a community of, of people. 
That's what God intends for you. And again, here's, here's Paul's concern. It's the same concern that he had at the end of chapter 1. It's, it's the gospel. He wants the, the, the lives that we live to match up to the gospel that we proclaim. Otherwise, we're being hypocrites. And the, the, his purpose in telling the Philippian church all this was their witness. He wanted them to have the proper witness uh, for the church in the community for which they are in. And so this is where the, all this is leading. Where this is a, this is a, a, a first part of a two-part sermon. Nick's going to come up and, and give the next part next week. And it's this. Humility is a picture of the grace of God grounded in the character of God revealed in Jesus Christ and what he did on the cross. And so the very next verse, Paul is going to start talking about the humility of Jesus. In verse 5, he says, Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus. And he goes on, verse 6, Who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. So here's, here's, Paul is exhorting us, be like Jesus, who was humble, and he, he shows us the humility of the God that we serve. Transit Church, what would our church be like if we saw our lives and our relationship with each other oriented around the same humility we see Jesus demonstrating as he walked the earth? That's the question for you to ponder this week. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word. I pray again that you would uh, not just inspire us, Lord God, but provoke change in us by, uh, by your Holy Spirit that lives in us. Holy Spirit, we give you freedom to, uh, to, yeah, to, to move us from where we are to where we should be. God, only you can change our heart, and you do that by your Spirit. So change us. I, I pray a special prayer in, in this room for those who might say that they're prideful people. And so, Lord, uh, bring us to repentance on our pride. Uh, I pray that um, where we have failed to be humble, Lord God, you would show us and uh, that you would um, bring us to the point of not just feeling sorry for our pride, but um, that you bring us to the point of fleeing to the cross and that we would receive God's forgiveness for that sin, that sin that God hates. Lord, would you protect those in this room who are particularly weak in this area? And God, remind us that, you, uh, that you're not finished with us. You said it in the sixth verse of Philippians 1, that he who began a good work will be faithful to complete it. And so, Lord, in this area in particular, where we are prideful, Lord God, would you show us our sin? Would you bring us to repentance? Would you heal our hearts? And would you complete the work that you've begun in us? And I pray that in your name. Amen. Amen.